Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for sharing the seven financial wins that you have had over the years. Let's move on to the seven mistakes that you have made over the years. And the first that you have listed is company stock. Yeah, this was one that um, that I personally uh, suffered a little bit from. But basically, uh, in, in a lot of corporate type environments, uh, sometimes your incentive package will include uh, stock and your compensation. And that might be uh, stock rights or stock options or restricted stock shares. It uh, could be that you're just offered the opportunity to buy um, employee stock purchase plan shares at a reduced cost uh, or even have stock as an option in your 401k plan. Um, and this is something that, you know, I learned the hard way. You know, there's a reason in all those SEC filings that the directors and officers liquidate a lot of their shares when they vest. You know, the rule is the same, whether you're an executive uh, at the senior officer level or, you know, down in the organization, let's say a mid-level manager that receives stock. Um, you know, when, when you get that stock, uh, you're paying taxes based on the price and value at the time you vest in the shares. And so let's, as an example, let's say your your stock at the time you receive it is $50 a share. Uh, like it's restricted shares. So the entire $50 is going to be compensation. So you will pay federal income taxes on that stock at $50 a share. Well, let's say your business has a tough year and the stock goes down to $25 a share and you're still holding those shares. So you paid federal income taxes at $50. Your basis is $50 the stock dropped to $25. Now, if you say, I need money for a down payment on a house, I'm going to sell that company stock. You're going to sell that stock at $25 a share. And let's say, you know, you, you get your $25 a share, but there's 25 more dollars that you actually paid federal taxes on. <laughs> you basically lost. Yeah. Okay. And so in that example, and that's not an extreme example, um, I I felt more pain than 50% loss on on a lot of my stock. And I learned the lesson. But one of our employees, uh, you know, had worked formerly at Enron. And we all know Enron's story, maybe, uh, maybe not. But uh, it was a pretty dramatic uh, house of cards that collapsed. And Enron, I believe, had... Um, you know, their company stock in their 401k plans too, in a lot of cases. And so people literally lost everything, yeah. uh, not only, you know, the, the share values, but also, um, 
retirement plans that had investments in company stock. And, uh, and this lady, she, she joined our company after Enron, uh, began to fall apart. I can, I can remember crystal clear, the CEO walking into a staff meeting and saying, you know, the Enron, first of all, do any of you own Enron stock? <laughs> you might want to go outside and sell it. <laughs> and second, there's going to be some great people on the street. We need to get yeah, some of them. There you go. And so, uh, there were some tremendous uh, employees and some great talent in that organization. And, and but the the lesson that that uh, she tried to impart on me was, you need to sell anything that vests right after it vests. You know, don't hold it. You're already counting on that company for a paycheck and your 401k plan and your medical benefits and everything else. You don't need more risk in the company you work for than you already have. And, you know, I thought, ah, that's crazy. You know, I'm going to let it go up and make a ton of money because whatever's $50 today is going to be $100 in five years. And I'm going to I'm going to hold it and, and, and get that upside. Well, uh, what I what I learned was, yeah, there was some upside, but there's also some downside. And and in some markets and some businesses, uh, you can imagine uh, knowing what you paid for oil and gas uh, when you filled up your car 10 years ago versus what you paid in the last three or four or five years, you realize that you're getting a bargain at the pump, which means somebody's feeling some pain in the energy industry. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into more specifics on that uh, on another point here below. But anyway, getting out of that company stock position is something that I should have done. And, and I did not... Um, I did not learn from her experience as much as I should have. Okay. Well, then the second financial mistake that you feel as though you've made was that you feel as though you were too conservative over the years. In what ways do you feel like you were too conservative? Well, this this is something that uh, I guess hindsight's always twenty twenty. But you know, you learn that maybe your investment decisions. You know, and and by that I mean. When you're putting money away, as we talked about in a 401k for 20, 30, 40 years, and there's probably not a lot of reason to buy any of the bond funds. You know, uh, if you're consistently investing in equities, you know, through up and down cycles, but long term up cycles, that money is going to work for you much harder if you're in equities and not if you're in bonds. And so, um, you know, when your cumulative return on investment is, is let's say, 20% or 15% uh, in, in stocks in the last several years, to have money in bonds that actually, in some cases, shrank uh, because the interest rates went down and, and stayed down and, and continue to be uh, very depressed. And, and as they actually start going up, your value in that bond fund goes down because it was buying bonds at low rates. And now interest rates start going up. And they were only paying a lower rate, so it's even worse. But long story short, having more of a, a exposure to equities would, would have helped me and less money on the sidelines, um, waiting for the correction that gets into market timing is something we'll talk about also. But uh, the other big area where I felt like I was too conservative is my career decisions. You know, uh, you know, one in terms of the career I pursued, as well as, you know, 
in given jobs, making the decision to move on or to leave the company for a, a potential promotion elsewhere when things got a little bit stale, uh, whether it was the company or my department or whatever, is you know being being able to actually you know see those and make decisions and to move on probably would have helped. Now, I will also say on the plus side, because I did spend a long period of time in two companies, that within those companies, uh, particularly the the one earlier in my career where I spent 12 years, I really kind of, you know, developed my professional um, skill set in that company where I hired in as, as an accountant reporting to a manager and and you know later moved up through being the youngest director in the company the to moving into another field to moving up to corporate and picking up responsibility responsibility for treasury uh and reporting and uh and then you know uh, again having a company bought out and realize it was time to leave you know and knowing when it's time to move on is something that's really important uh, and because you can begin to position yourself and start building the relationships, which you sh- probably should keep evergreen in case, you know, surprises happen and you need to move somewhere. But, you know, I I, I will say there's one more point I want to make here, and I don't think it's anywhere on the list, is when I was uh, going to college in the in the early 80s, you know, I, I was bound and determined not to change my major. Uh, and I was going to get out of college in three and a half years, which I actually did. You know, I took some classes at a junior college, which is an extremely economical way uh, to save money, even for today's students. Um, you know, where you take classes while you're in high school or in the summer, and then you don't have to take them at the higher cost institution as long as they accept those transfer credits properly uh, in your degree field. So uh, I was set to, and I refused to change my major. Uh, because to me, I valued getting out on time or early more important than maybe pursuing a different major. And I took every single elective in computer programming classes, and I absolutely loved it. I thrived mm-hmm. on that stuff. Roll your clock back into the mid-80s, and that was the time that Microsoft and Oracle and all these early-stage you know, software companies we're kind of really finding their feet and, and becoming the future. Well, I kick myself every day for not getting out of accounting and taking computer science classes because I loved sure. it. But, you know, as passionate as I am, I was sticking to my commitment to get out on time and get an accounting degree. And so, you know, I look back and later in my career, I was able to do a lot of work in the IT side as well. But, you know, it, you can't help but look back and say, well, what if I would have done that? You know, so my word there is, you know, if you're if you're passionate about something and it's really something that you think you'll enjoy, it's OK to make a change. And and that's something that I can say personally, my uh, a couple of my children have made decisions to change their careers or change their companies uh, to ful- you know get more fulfillment and joy out of what they're doing every day, and I completely supported it, and, and I think uh, I wished I would have had the same guts that they have today. So uh, something to to be said for that. That's wonderful advice. Thank you for sharing. And then you touched a little bit on the third mistake that you feel like you've made, which is market timing. Do you mind sharing a bit more about that? 
Yeah, market timing is, you know, we, we've all heard about people, you know, holding, holding money on the sidelines, waiting for the, quote, correction to happen, and then putting their money in, you know. And I had a particularly painful one of these occur um, a few years back. I, I made the decision to roll a 401k over from the company I'd formerly worked for many years earlier um, to a an IRA. And in the process of doing this, I took the money out of one plan. I didn't physically take custody. I had it sent to a, another firm, so I didn't have any kind of tax penalty. Yeah. But it went to the the new destination, and it was right at the time, I guess it was 2016, the Trump election was taking place. And I'm like, you know, this is going to be chaos. The market's going to drop. It's going to be confused. I'm going to wait and see what happens when the dust clears. Well, I waited till the dust cleared a little bit and I realized that I'd already missed maybe 15 or 20% of market appreciation. Sure. Well, I had that money sitting in cash and I'm like, okay, you should have known better. Yep. Uh, but long story short, I got it, I got it invested and it's somewhat all invested now. But the lesson I learned was, you know, you and I can't guess when those market moves are going to happen. And, and as much as I say, uh, the market goes up over time, and I've read books, and you you know the 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 mentality is different than maybe the facts suggest. But when you have a lump sum, you need to put it in right away. Definitely, you know the best thing to do is get it invested, and and uh, and I I should have taken my own medicine there. So uh, I will say that I have had the wherewithal during the last you know several market corrections to not sell. Uh, so. At least I know better in terms of stick to your investment policy, but I learned the hard way on you know being out of the market when the market moves and um you know and then the other thing I've done you know from a market timing point of view is you know i I would buy uh, a lot of individual stocks you know earlier in my investing you know career, and I made the mistake of especially early on, I'd buy a stock and when it was up ten percent, I would sell it. Well, if it's a stock that's worth owning, it's a it's a good solid investment. There's no reason to sell it if you don't need the money. And so, just seeing that it's up ten, you know, I guess that was back when you know there was a a movie I think called Billionaire Boys Club or something that came out way 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 back. But my coworker and I used to call ourselves the Billionaire Boys guys. <laughs> you know, anyway, long story short, we whenever one of our doors was closed, we were making a telephone call. <laughs> to a stockbroker and buying something. This is the way it happened in the eighties. And so, and so, you know, when you're paying a $35 commission and a stock moves, you know, two or $3 and you finally up and you know, you, you have a spreadsheet and you, you subtract your $35 commission and this is what the price is. And I'll make this much, you know, you're trading stocks and you're not investing. And, um, you know, later in my career, I, I started to buy what I call blue chip stocks. And, uh, and, and we'll talk more about those. But, you know, selling with a 10 percent gain is is not is not really investing, you know, uh, and, and, in a you know, when a little market move happens. Uh, and then later you find out, you know, I, I owned Apple stock and stuff like that where you sell it and then it goes up hundreds of percent or thousands of percent, you know, <laughs> so. Good companies are rewarded uh, and they do well and and holding them over a longer period of time would have made more sense. 
So speaking of some individual stocks that you've invested over the years, it sounds like that's your fourth mistake that you've made. Do you have other individual stocks that you feel like you've regretted over the years or different words of advice for us millennials? Yeah, I I was guilty of thinking I knew a little bit more about a particular industry than the rest of Wall Street or Main Street. You know, when you work in a company that's in a certain business sector, you tend to get a lot of information about other companies in that space and, you know, strategically, you know, where they are moving to and, um, and, and you start to maybe buy more in that sector than you probably should. And I bought a lot of stocks in the same space and I learned the hard way. I wasn't any, uh, any better at knowing how those companies were doing than anybody else. Uh, and, and it, it cost me in two ways. It cost me in diversification because I began to get too much in one sector. And then it also cost me in terms of those companies uh, went down just like any other company went down when they had business problems. And so that was a lesson I learned as well in individual stocks. But the other thing I want to mention is I looked at, at all my holdings and I realized I had 132 different investments. And in those 132 investments, I had a bunch of individual stocks and I can tell you there's no way I was keeping up with each of those companies to the degree I should have to know if I should be holding them or selling them. Uh, and and so with with all of that, and also found a lot of overlap in terms of a lot of funds that own the same companies, I started to concentrate and sell those individual stocks and take that risk off the table and and move that money toward index funds. But one in particular, a blue chip stock that I own, General Electric, you know, you know, and I, I've I've got a point here. I own a, a good bit of General Electric in my holdings, and if you know, uh, General Electric struggled uh, <laughs> a few years back significantly, and you know, it was a blue chip stock. As a matter of fact, it was I think the longest running stock in the Dow Jones average. Uh, they were in the average from 1896 to 2018. So. <laughs> This is a company that you thought was a rock solid investment until it wasn't. Sure. And, and just last year, you know, ExxonMobil and Pfizer and Raytheon were all taken out of the Dow Jones average. Yeah. And, and those three were replaced by Salesforce, Amgen and Honeywell. So my point is what's what's rock solid and blue chip today may not be blue tomorrow. And I learned that the hard way. And so I finally sold off the last of my General Electric to offset some stock gains last year. And I'm so happy that I don't have to pull up a portfolio and see General Electric on it anymore. <laughs> but, you know, that that's a lesson I learned the hard way. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. And then the fifth financial mistake that you've made has to do with rollover company plans. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this one's a little bit complicated, but on one of your recent episodes, you talked about mega backdoor Roth, yeah. uh, you know, and that opportunity for, for moving money into a Roth, which I think is a tremendous, um, you know, potential move to make. But the IRS has some, a, a pro rata rule that considers uh, any deducted contributions or investment earnings in your traditional IRAs when you when you'd make a conversion. And if I would have done more research on this, I probably would not have rolled that plan over. Um, you know, because it would have given me a, a better position in terms of these backdoor Roth conversions. Sure. 
And so that's something that I look back and I, you know, I think now in hindsight, I, I should have maybe moved a little slower, but don't get me wrong. You got to take action and move things if, if you want to move them, but know all the you can about the facts around it and, uh, and, and doing a little homework, maybe even reaching out to a professional tax guy would have been a better idea on this one. Uh, and that's, that's my point of putting it on the list. I, I don't know to what degree this is going to hurt me, but I can tell you it's something that is an option that may still be an option, but not as beneficial. Is, is my point. Certainly. And then the sixth mistake that you would like to share is variable whole life policy. So unfortunately, lots of us have experienced this, myself included, but do you mind sharing your story about this? Sure. You know, if if you can picture in your mind uh, a young parent, uh, my wife and I have two little two little kids running around and, and um, they're very uh, well-trained um personal friend of ours was an insurance sales guy and uh he he worked his magic on me and you know you know while your wife is watching the kids in the next room you know you don't want to leave your wife with with no financial resources if something happens to you and this is a great investment process this whole life will have a cash value and it's a tax benefit to you and you know all of the sales jargon and when you're young and don't have as much perspective, a strong, confident salesman is going to be really good at his job. And, and, and you are, you got a target on your head and I was a target. Uh, I bought the farm in terms of, I didn't say I really didn't buy the farm, but I bought two policies from this very large, reputable life insurance company on the positive side. At least it's a large, reputable company on the negative side. I bought a term policy and I bought a variable whole policy. Mm. Well, the premium for that term policy was, let's call it 60 bucks. And uh, and the premium, and I think they're equal cash value or uh, payout policy face amounts at the time, uh, was like 240 bucks, $243, I think. And so it was a substantially higher cost when, you know, back when my income was much lower and you know, uh, you now the conventional wisdom, uh, which is very true, is, you know, you need life insurance for what it's for. OK, I need a term policy and I needed it to take care of my family if something happened to me as a primary wage earner. But did I need it as an investment solution? Did I need it as a beneficial tax financial instrument? No, no, absolutely not. And And so. You know, had I bought the same face value of term for the combined value and taken that extra and invested it in the stock market over the last 27 years or however many years I had that policy, I don't need to tell you the math on that, but it would be astronomically better, you know, if I would have taken that, call it 180 or whatever the net is, and invested it in the market every month. But, uh, that was something that uh, I succumbed to uh, all the sales tactics. And uh, even though I'm a CPA, okay, uh, I'm a rational financial guy, I bought it. I bought it. And uh, it, it was not a smart decision. Uh, and so I think that if you just remember one thing, term life, that's <laughs> all you need to remember. Buy a yep. term package, uh, a term policy, and you're much better off investing in an investment company, not in a life insurance company. So uh, you, you mentioned that's something that, that affected you as well. Yes, I completely agree. Unfortunately, right out of PA school, 
my husband and I started working with a quote unquote financial advisor. We fell prey to investing with our life insurance, which you probably should not be mixing life insurance and investing. And we probably lost a fair amount of money. And I should have seen this as a huge red flag, but right out of PA school, I was really wanting to pay off my student loans ASAP. And I was talking to him about a strategy of how to do this. And he goes, oh, you can just take your time. You should really be focusing on this instead with your money. And again, I was too naive and probably pretty trusting. You know, he's this financial expert. So I took his advice and have been paying off student loans very slowly over the years instead of paying them off quickly and just being done with them already. So we were able to fire our financial advisor and we haven't looked back since. And we do have term life insurance now that we are completely happy with. So thanks for sharing your story about it too. Well, excellent. Don't don't beat yourself up because, you know, you can't change the past, but you can certainly move forward in the future and you you know that you got the train back on the track and you're moving forward. So that's, that's excellent. Exactly. And then your seventh financial mistake that you like to share is new cars over the years. Yeah, this is one of those ones that it seems kind of obvious, but maybe it's not because it's death by a thousand monthly payments, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the biggest impacts, you know, you can have, uh, you know, particularly earlier in your career is, um, is is putting that money away earlier. And, and when you make the decision to buy a brand spanking new smelling great ha- car, if you're addicted to new car smell, you know what I mean, you'll make some large payments or, you know, maybe even you lease it and, and you know, uh, it's basically an expense for that lease period. And then hopefully they don't tag you with any mileage overruns or any you know, uh, damage to the vehicle or dings or dents or scratches or whatever. But, you know, you can spend a ton of money on cars. And I actually wrote a a pretty extensive post uh, 5.0 called the Discover the Secret Turbocharger to Your Early Retirement in my blog. And, um, you know, basically this can be a million dollar difference over a 30 year period with you and your partner, you know, buying cars, you know, and so it's one of those things where, you know, we bought some new cars uh, in our life, but we've also, you know, there was a point where I kind of saw the light along the way and, um, and uh, I began to buy uh, secondhand cars or used cars. Uh, and at the time, you know, I had kids that were getting close to college age and I, uh, I began commuting a lot and it was something where, I uh, I bought a 2005. I guess was the last new car I bought. Now, granted, it was a it was a Honda Civic, and I was commuting a long distance at the time to my job, and and it was great timing because I bought it right before the gas prices started going up after the hurricanes began to hit refineries and things uh, and take out capacity, forcing gas prices up. But you know, it worked out well for me. But I didn't buy another new car for many, many years. You know, I bought, you know, some uh, Corolla, a Ford Focus. Uh, I had the Civic I was driving and an older Ford uh, Chevy truck. And those ended up being the cars that got me between that last new car. And then in 2016, when my wife said, you know, you haven't bought a car uh, for yourself in 11 years, you need to go get, <laughs> get a new truck. And, and, and so I ended up doing that. I bought one. It was a demo that had uh, 7,000 miles on it. And I felt like I got a good deal sure. on it. But, uh, you know, my point is if you spend the money to buy the top dollar car and get a loan 
and it depreciates and you're making payments and you're paying financial costs and your insurance will be higher and, and all those things that go along with it. If you if you conversely buy a a more modest vehicle, let's say you buy the Honda Accord or the Toyota Camry or a Civic or a Corolla, if you wanted to work down that equation, you'll spend a whole lot less on the car. And if it's a you know, two or three year old car that has 30, 40, 50,000 miles on it, and you drive it 150,000 miles, you pay cash for that car. It's a completely different equation over that 30 year period. And so you can save a tremendous amount of money by buying used cars and driving them longer, as long as it makes sense. Obviously, if you get a car that seems to have perpetual repair problems, you probably need to move on to a different vehicle. But uh, conversely, one of the cars that we drove 185,000 miles, it was a Suburban. We sold it to another guy and he used it in his catering business. He called us. He says, the Suburban finally died. <laughs> it made it over 300,000 oh, wow. miles. That's awesome. <laughs> so he paid cash uh, for that Suburban when he bought it from us. As a matter of fact, they've actually bought another Suburban from us since sure. then um, that we had driven uh, a, a good number of miles sure. as well. So you know, we, our philosophy has kind of been, you know, mom's got the the reliable family vehicle, the drop off all the kids at ball practice and all those things over the years. And, and it was the one we traveled in if we took, uh, you know, travel at road trips. Right. So, you know, we really used it. We enjoyed it, but we drove it a lot of miles. Sure. That's great. That's so funny that you mentioned Suburbans because before my husband and I learned about financial independence, we had leased a brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee had all the features, heated leather seats, which was amazing up here in the upper Midwest. And it also had remote start. It could parallel park and 90 degree back itself. And we used those features zero times while we were leasing it. But my dear husband wanted the Hemi, you know, so he wanted that Grand Cherokee that was more expensive than the other one that I was like perfectly content with as I was moving up from a Hyundai Elantra after nine years of driving that. So we finished our lease. And when we returned the lease for that Jeep Grand Cherokee, I felt just as happy as if I were buying a new car. I was like, I'm so done with this thing. So done with those payments. And we've instead bought a 2004 Suburban with $5,000 in cash from one of his great uncles who took meticulously accurate care and kept complete records of this thing. And it's not the nicest feature. It doesn't have those heated leather seats in the winter, the remote start. I have to go out there in those snowstorms. But every time I drive it, I am completely content because there are 192,000 miles on it. But it's great to know that maybe it can reach 300,000 miles. And I will be so content knowing that I'm just saving a ton of money where it's not going down the toilet every single month and instead being able to invest it. So thanks for sharing that. Well, that is incredible that you actually made that change to take that action and pay cash for a vehicle that didn't smell new when you got <laughs> it home. But I bet I bet you can haul more stuff than anybody else. And, you know, uh, and I, I particularly the, the heated seats in the Midwest, you know, that is a big one. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so it is. <laughs> down here, it, you know, there's those packages that have heated seats and, and then there's the package that has cooled seats. It has that too. You know, in the South, <laughs> we like we like the cool stuff even more. But I will tell you, my wife Suburban has that, that heated steering wheel and heated seats. And there's nothing she likes more in the wintertime than 
starting it up and letting it warm up and then grabbing that wheel and it's not freezing our hands off. But, but, uh, you know, that's not much of a sacrifice because as you said, there are so many options on some of these vehicles that you never use, Exactly. you know, and, and, uh, you're actually paying yep. for them. So totally. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Well, that'll make a huge difference in, in you're paying your loans off quicker and everything else. Cause that's not going to be a big payment. Every for month. sure. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your seven financial mistakes that you've made over the years. Next, we have seven words of advice that you have for millennials. And the first suggestion that you have is to read The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. So tell us what you like about that book. Well, this this is a great book. And for me, it was actually a page turner. You know, I obviously read it on a different uh, in a different situation than maybe you would be reading it. But even even as an early retiree, I read this book and I thought to myself, if only I could have had this philosophy completely, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it would have completely changed my situation in terms of it being so much better even than it is. So there was some great uh, words of wisdom in that book, but more so it was very straightforward. It was a, a very reasonable perspective with the terms uh, that he tries to communicate in the book, actually does communicate in the book. And I felt like it would have made a big difference, uh, you know, in in my approach. You know, one of the things he talks a lot about is uh, index funds and, and, and not necessarily buying individual stocks, but, you know, the risk mitigation you get with an index fund and market performance and how many things don't perform better than the market, you know, these managed mutual funds and such. And so at my point, I'm happy with market performance. I don't need to beat the market, nor do I believe most people can beat the market. And so uh, I wish that I would not have done the things I did with individual stocks over the years uh, that I did. But uh, this book, I was on about page 100 and I literally put the book down, went over to my computer and opened a Vanguard account, which is a significant account now in my portfolio holdings I have today. But it's like I'd heard a lot about Vanguard, but I needed to yeah. know more. And so I, I opened I opened up an account. I do a lot of automatic investing with them. Uh, and I think reading this book will give you the perspective. And I put it number one on the list because I think you need the whole perspective in investing and in these life decisions and financial impacts of those decisions kind of up front. And then once you build that basic knowledge, then you can move forward with the other execution of steps toward financial independence. Sure. Yeah, I will include a link to that book in the show notes for today because I've read it as well. And I think it's excellent for giving advice of how to get started with investing and why it's important to invest in index funds and things like that. And then the second word of advice that you have for millennials is to know where your money goes. Yeah. You know, this, if you don't, if you really don't have a bearing of where you are, it's kind of hard to figure out how to get where you want to go. And and this is so true with financial independence. If you don't know where you're spending your money, uh, and how much you're spending, uh, then it's really hard to kind of ascertain how much of a gap you have between what you make and what you spend. Uh, because as we all we all know, the gap is what gives you the growth and the fuel for your financial independence. So um, I wrote a pretty extensive blog post, 9.0, about conscious spending. But the, the crux of it is, uh, you know, knowing where your money goes downloading your transactions from your your 
debit, your, if you use a debit card from your bank account, if you use a credit card from your credit card statement, you know, download that stuff, get it in a category, do some analysis. It doesn't matter if you use a paper and a pencil or if you use a pivot table in Excel, which is one of my favorite tools to analyze a lot of data, but get a grasp on, on where you're spending your money uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, you're not hemorrhaging, uh, you know, in some cases, like let's say you have, uh, you know, Netflix and and Hulu and, you know, you name it. You start adding up all the different TV streaming services and it may be that you have five or six or seven of those. Do you really yeah. need them all? You know, do you, do you, are you even aware? Because, you know, it's like the thousand paper cuts, $10 a month. That's nothing. Do I even look at it? Well, when you add 10 services together, and it really comes up to $150 a month, you might want to be aware of it. So, uh, but knowing where your expenses uh, level are, you know, where, where the expense is and uh, if it makes sense to continue to be paying it. Sure. And then the third suggestion that you have for millennials is to build a cash cushion or emergency fund. And I know that we talked a little bit about this earlier, but do you have some other points that you'd like to mention about this? Yeah, I think we covered this pretty extensively earlier, but, you know, it's just, the peace of mind that it provides and, and having that cash, like I said, gives you options and, and the bumps on the road, the speed bumps, they're not going to knock you off the road when you have an emergency fund. If you've got to go buy you know $1,000 worth of tires for your vehicle, you've got that money, it's set aside, you spend it, you replace your emergency fund over the future months and you basically become your own bank. And so you're not running up credit card debt, you know, and, and, and those type of things. So emergency funds are really critical. Great. And then the fourth recommendation that you have is to get debt free. And why is that? <laughs> you know, uh, it's really hard to begin investing if you're making a bunch of payments on debt. And, and as you mentioned, uh, student loans, uh, you know, lease payments, uh, car payments, all those things are fairly substantial numbers usually in your budget uh, when you're younger in your career. And and getting debt-free, suddenly when you're not making those payments, all those dollars are going into investments. And so, um, you know, one of the things about, um, you know, having a very healthy financial life is you're able to pay your bills. Well, you know, sometimes uh, you have some debt, and I, and by that I mean things like a, a mortgage potentially, or uh, maybe even a car loan that you you know pay back you know quickly. Those type of things I can understand they're big lumpy purchases, and it's it's harder to be able to pay cash for for a home. But um, you know, conversely, you know if you're if you're making credit card payments and you're paying minimum payments or paying, you know, a third of what the bill is, you know, there might be a bigger problem than you realize. Uh, you might actually be spending more money than you're making and you don't even realize it because, hey, I'm able to pay my bills. I pay all my bills. I pay on my credit cards. Well, there's a difference between paying on your card and paying off your card. <laughs> That's It's painfully exactly. obvious, but... You know, it's probably a symptom that you're overspending uh, if you continue to pay a, a minimum payment or a smaller payment than your full bill. Uh, and it's one thing if you have like a surprise thing that hits your, you, you, you let's say the example with new tires where you spend $1,000 on your credit card for your tires and maybe 
you split that and pay it off on two months instead of one month. Okay, well, that's a really lumpy expense, uh, and I can understand that. But if you go out and party with your friends and spend money at a bar or restaurant, and then you're paying for that over the next 18 months, let me just be real clear, that that liquor has already passed through your body (laughs) many, many months back. Sure. (laughs) You're not getting a benefit out of it, but you're paying interest on it still, you know, 18 months later. And I, I hate to use that example, but you know, it, there's a concept in accounting, uh, going back to my professional background, called the matching concept, where you want to try to match the revenue with the expense. Or in this case, you may you may want to match the joy with the expense. Sure. You know, so if you're going out and and having a nice time, nice dinner with your friends, you need to pay for it when you do it, yeah, <laughs> and not for the next eighteen months. You know, and so that's 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 one of those points as Definitely. well. Definitely. And then your fifth suggestion for millennials is to start investing today. Do you mean literally today, Paul? I do. I mean literally today. You know, and and this kind of assumes that you don't have any credit card debt when I say today. Because, you know, I I didn't mention earlier, you know, if you've got credit card debt, you're probably paying a 25% uh, finance charge on that credit card. So uh, let me just be real clear. Uh, I would make any investment today if it guaranteed me a 25% return. And while you can't get guaranteed returns on any kind of financial investments, you can get a guaranteed return on paying your debt off because you know what the interest rate is. You know you owe the money. The sooner you pay it off, the sooner you save that 25%. So get out of debt, get out of that higher uh, credit card debt. But by all means, start investing today. You know, uh, I talked to my daughter this morning and she says, hey, I invested yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And she was kind of joking because, you know, she's got an account set up that automatically invests Mm -hmm. every week. And 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 so and and so she was a little uh, let's just say she was, quote, too busy to ever set all that stuff up. So she and I set some stuff up the other day. I, I said, you know, you have got to start putting money in. You can't can't say that you're going to wait for the market to drop, you know, and, and if you just make it automatic, you don't have to think about it. You just know it's happening every week, you know, every Wednesday or every Thursday or whatever day of the week you want to pick, uh, you can set these things up. And so I'm a huge fan of automation. Uh, I've got some automated uh, transactions that happen between funding my HSA account, and uh, covering our expenses every month, uh, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard, M1, even Acorns or some of the robo-investing systems, any of them make sense in terms of being able to automate. And uh, and by doing that, it it's something that's passively taking place. So, you know, at the end of the year, you know, you put in a little money every week, you know, and in the con- you know, scenario, if you, you take the Rip Van Winkle approach and you wake up in several years, you'll you'll realize that suddenly you got $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, depending on how much you invest. But when you do it automatically, it happens. It, it happens. It will happen. And um, the hardest thing is to have that discipline and mentality of, you know, getting started, taking action. And if you don't ever invest, it won't grow. And, and, um, I talked to somebody last week that had inherited at a, at a reunion and they had inherited a large sum of money uh, from a parent and it had been sitting in cash for five years. Wow. 
And, and I just hurt yeah. inside when she tells me this story because of that opportunity cost, you know, it, it had you, even, even if you felt like the market was too high, if you put it in over time, you're still going to get it in the market and put it to work. And so, uh, you know, it, it, the emotions are, are something that you struggle with when you read the facts that say invest today, no matter what, the lump sum. Yeah, it's still hard to do it all at once. But you know what? If you spread it out over a year or three years and you just do, you know, every quarter you're putting in a chunk, at least it'll eventually get in the market. You know, if it's in there for a long time, it'll it'll still help. Definitely. And then we did touch on point number six for your advice for millennials about buying a reliable, gently used, already depreciated vehicle. Do you have any more suggestions or points that you'd like to touch on about that? Yeah, I think we covered this one pretty thoroughly. But remember, you know, you're going to be buying vehicles probably most of your lifetime. And and once you kind of adopt the philosophy that you explained what you did personally, which is it's if you get to the point of realizing it's an A to B mm-hmm. item, it gets me from A to B, it's transportation, it's reliable, it takes care of what I need it to do. And it's not a trophy. Sure. It's not a, a symbol of wealth to have. You know, I drove a Toyota Corolla. That was the last car I drove, uh, and you know, until I bought that truck. I did buy the truck before I uh, retired. But, but uh, you know, I took a lot of crap from people over my Honda Civic and the Toyota Corolla and the Ford Focus, which actually in the three, the Ford was the least desirable in in terms of my experience. But I really had a great experience, and the other two cars are still on the road today. My kids are all driving. Uh, these old vehicles and, you know, the 2005 Honda still going. And my, and my son drove it for four years in college and five years in MD PhD school and still going strong, you know, and the, the 2004 Chevy still still a daily driver for my other son and my daughter's driving the Corolla, you know, they, they, they have this addiction to paid for cars, I guess. I don't know where they get this. <laughs> well, it's good that you're able to instill those words of wisdom with your kiddos over the years. I try. I try. Awesome. And then the seventh and final advice that you have for millennials is to grow the gap. What do you mean by that? Grow the gap. You know, uh, we took a vacation over to the UK a few years back, and and they have this announcement on the subway. It says, mind the gap. And they're talking about the gap between the platform and the train. But, you know, that, that stuck in my mind. And my mantra has been grow the gap on my podcast. The difference between income and expenses is the gap. And if you grow the gap, you're going to have resources for financial independence. And, you know, there's there's key two key points here. It doesn't matter which lines you grow that'll impact the result, but growing the income line, you know, and not growing expenses, you will get a larger gap. So as you get a raise or a promotion, you know, if you don't increase your lifestyle to spend that money, you will be growing the gap and living below your means and making decisions along the way when when your compensation starts to creep up not letting your expenses move up as as much will increase your ability to put money away in investments or rental properties or whatever your your means of growing that wealth are uh and so by growing the gap that's what i mean you know increase your income 
or decrease your expenses, or even just holding your expenses flat. Sure. You know, as we all know, inflation causes things to go up. And so if you can hold your expenses flat during a period of inflation, you're actually reducing them. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your triple sevens, which were your seven financial wins, seven financial mistakes, and your seven words of advice for millennials. Since you are the first guest that I have on that has actually reached financial independence, I do have just a few more questions to ask just to kind of get a little bit more background about that. So once you actually reached financial independence, how did you actually access your money in early retirement? Because so many of us hear about how for many retirement accounts, you have to wait until at least 59 and a half to access your money, which we know in the FI community that it's a little bit of a myth. You can actually access your money a little bit earlier. But you mentioned you retired in your mid-50s. So do you have any tips or tricks for us that might retire before the age 59 and a half? Yeah, I, I was able to put away money in after-tax investments uh, primarily, and I do have a, a bit of a, uh, a bucket philosophy approach in, in how we handle our finances, but by that I mean you kind of set aside buckets for certain purposes. And so for me on the near term, uh, until we reach the age of 59 and a half and have those other options of being able to take, you know, traditionally take money out of those retirement plans. We had money set aside in after-tax investments that uh, that is invested in, in a conservative way. By that, I mean it's not all in equities that meets our financial needs for expenses every month. And my wife, as I said earlier, is still working part-time. So her part-time salary also uh, helps tremendously in, in meeting expenses. And so we, we're able to use those after-tax uh, accounts uh, to meet most of our needs and, and not have to worry about any kind of early withdrawal schemes. It, it, as you mentioned, there are ways to get money earlier, but they're a little bit more complicated. Sure. And, and it's nice to not have to do any of that. So uh, that's, that's kind of the way we handle it. So essentially, you would suggest if someone is able to save more than a 401k, HSA, Roth IRA per year to try to invest the extra money into a taxable brokerage account so then they have those funds there that they can use to help bridge them until they're able to get their retirement accounts money out. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. And and that's, you know, that's, I think, one of the easiest options. Uh, and, and by having it in an after-tax account, you can also use it for, you know, any number of things. It gives you the ultimate flexibility. Like I mentioned, if you choose to invest in more real, rental properties or something, that money is all easily accessible to make any other types of transactions. So having, having a chunk and, you know, and I, I didn't mention it earlier, but I have this concept of being half right or half wrong. If you don't know the, any one best solution, it's okay to, to do a little of this and a little of that, because then you will have the options that each of those decisions give you. So that's kind of what we've done. That's great. And then my next question for you as an early retiree is, did you experience something called one more year syndrome which is where many early retirees have reached financial independence, but they end up working for at least one more year past the point of five. And if you did experience that, what do you view as some pros and cons of working past the point of financial independence? Wow, that's uh, that's a great question. And, and, and absolutely, you know, you think this is a crazy concept until you're at that point in your life where you're making more money than you've ever made before. 
and uh, you know how much extra security, uh, and you mentioned, is there a benefit to working one more year? And, and I would say, yes, uh, there's a benefit. And that benefit is putting one more year's worth of savings away. Because at that point in my career, we were saving close to 80% of our of our pay. And I mean, that's probably something that's hard to do, maybe even in your point in your career right now for for you to say you're saving 80%, I'd say, how are you doing it? Sure. <laughs> unless, unless you're making half a million dollars a year already and you'd only need a little bit to live off of. But for us, you know, we were, you know, when, when you're debt free and uh, you're well compensated, there's no reason not to be saving a lot of money. And so you see how quickly uh, your financial assets start piling up. It's really, really hard to say, I've got enough. I can walk away. And, and and even though the spreadsheets and everything else that we had done, uh, you know, I, I think for me, the one more year syndrome, because of my professional career as a CPA and auditor and working in compliance areas and other, you know, part of my job was to figure out what could go wrong. Okay, so that mentality on a spreadsheet for your financial future, and I call this my life plan spreadsheet. I talk about this in, in the podcast, but basically, you know, annual expenses going out until you die. That's a hard, gross thing to say, but you decide how long I'm going to live and, you know, what are my expenses going to look like. And so, so you build into this the knowns. And then your financial training says, but there are unknowns and you need contingencies to cover those unknowns. And and so you start putting in the, I might have to do this. I might have this surprise. I might have a medical, you know, all these unknowns. And 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 the, the problem I had was not seeing the, the other side of the coin. And I finally started, you know, checking myself and saying, you know, things can go right too. They don't all just go wrong. And number one, all those contingencies are not going to happen at the same time or maybe ever. Yeah. But, you know, I had built them into the plan and I, I'm like, you know what? I don't need to plan for all these things to happen. Now, do I have a contingency in my financial plan? Absolutely. <laughs> because there are things that will happen. And if they don't happen, that's money that's available for lifestyle, sure. right? or for legacy, or for charitable giving, or because all those things are important. You know, donor advised funds, something we have, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, in life that you may want to do. And one of those is help other people. So you put that stuff in your plan and, and, uh, or other organizations that you have uh, passion to support. And so anyway, you build the plan, but realize that not all the negatives are going to happen, but you do need to plan for some contingencies. So, you know, that's that's one of the things that fed against, you know, the one more year thing. Well, if I make a little more money, I can cover more contingencies. Well, you don't even know what those are going to be. Sure. And so uh, for me, that was that was part of the challenge. And, and uh, the other thing is, you know, the, the market, you know, what, there's a thing called sequence of return risk. And that was very near and dear to my mentality. Because, you know, if you retire and then the market has a really bad string of years and you're taking money out of assets that is depreciated, it can't recover, you know, depending on, you know, the size of your portfolio and stuff. So literally right after I make the decision to retire, 
the market kind of had a little hiccup. And this was at the end of 2019. Sure. Well, then it had a really <laughs> big hiccup in, in 2020, yeah. right? And so... <laughs> And and so I I saw our portfolio shrink and it only shrank I don't know twenty five percent maybe it wasn't as much as the whole yep. market because I wasn't all sure. in equities right but it was still a huge number on paper mm-hmm. <laughs> and it scared me um, and fortunately all the things that I had in place like the bucket I mentioned that was not in equities that covered our expenses. And the fact that I stuck to our investment policy, which is leave it in yep. and let it recover. As J.L. Collins says, the market will continue to its relentless pursuit up and mm-hmm. to the right. Okay. Well, if you believe it and you live it, leave your money alone and it will recover. And it did just that and then a whole lot more. So, you know, my financial models uh, were more conservative because I tend to be more conservative when I'm, you know, projecting something that my life depends on those assets lasting longer than me. So I believe in being conservative in your model. And I believe in having some contingencies provided in your model, uh, you know, when you're making those decisions. That's great advice. Thank you. And then my final question that I have for you as an early retiree is, did you retire towards something in that? Do you feel like you have lots of plans for retirement? Have you been pursuing different projects, hobbies, adventures, and if so, can you please share what some of those have been? Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. You know, I I would say first off, yes, I sort of, uh, I can sort of say I retired towards something. But, you know, I, I had a list and as you might imagine, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an analytical black and white person in terms of decision making. And, you know, you, you pull out the the sheet or you have a spreadsheet on the left side, you got pros and on the right side, you got your cons. And so I listed out all the things that I would enjoy doing, uh, as a retiree. Uh, and, and then I listed out all the things that were negatives about retiring, you know, early and, and making this decision, uh, to leave. And, and there were a lot of things on that list, um, on both sides. And, you know, some are heavier weighted, you know, you could get into weighting and analysis and quantifying everything, but a lot of it is, is more subjective. Uh, and there are things that I believe that I've actually fulfilled and I'm pursuing those items, uh, you know, just as I thought I would. And there are things on the list that I'm not pursuing as much as I thought I would. And, uh, you know, but one of the things on the list, uh, is, you know, my wife and I used to have an RV when the kids were young and we really enjoyed it. And she did a lot of camping growing up and it's something we enjoyed. So that's something that we plan to do a lot more, uh, a travel. Uh, and, and I say slow travel, I guess, more so than just travel. You know, we spent, um, two weeks recently on this anniversary trip to several national parks and, you know, covered, 3,800 miles in her suburban. Okay. So we managed to do that and stay married, but I don't think we've ever taken two weeks off. Certainly never taken two weeks off with no kids. Okay. So taking two weeks off, I told my wife, I said, this is like a sampler trip. This is going to be kind of what it's like. And we got to, uh, and we, we Airbnb'd it all the way, you know, up and back and, and, um, 
and had some great hikes, uh, you know, really enjoyed, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park and the Grand Tetons and, uh, and even one day in Yellowstone to see bison swimming the Yellowstone River wow. and then jumping across a, a creek and then their migration, they're starting. You know, it was the only thing we didn't see was a bear on the trip. <laughs> we saw moose and, and we saw elk and deer and, you know, all, all those things. But uh, we had our bear spray ready, but we never got to <laughs> well, see a bear. That's probably good. <laughs> but, 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 but travel is something that I think we really plan to do more of. And, and we uh, had a great two-week uh, trip and you know, spent, like I said, 38 miles together. We're still married. We're still happy. And uh, and I can see us spending, you know, spending a lot more time traveling when she fully retires. You know, the other thing I've done is uh, I've enjoyed uh, gardening. My my uh, middle child is, is, a, is an avid gardener, and he has got me uh, involved in doing a lot of projects and, and teaching me things. And uh, he is a big fan of growing things from seeds. Uh, and so I've begun to do some of that. You know, you're making a transition when your birthday card comes and inside the birthday card are three seed packets that he's harvested from his plants for me to start growing them. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> so, so fun. Uh, as one of the more you. One of the more unique birthday sure. presents that I got was his own, his own seed stock. <laughs> so uh, it, it was pretty pretty crazy, but I've enjoyed uh, growing things. And, and I, I, I want to hit on this because it's something I didn't know. It's a surprise in retirement is, you know, we, we've got some, uh, it's not a large place, but we got a little over an acre here around the house. And when you retire and you're physically taking walks in the yard, this is crazy, but you notice when certain wildflowers appear and, and you notice that there's an early spring set of flowers and a late spring set of flowers. And there's some flowers that hang on through the summer and in the South where it's really hot, you know, there's, it's pretty Brown out there right now. You know, we're kind of recovering from the hottest month of the year and, and, and it is just to see the seasons change and what all is happening at a more finite, finite level. It's like, you know, this stuff has been happening every year, but I've never experienced sure. it, you know, because I don't ever have time. <laughs> and and you start to really appreciate the walk around the backyard with a cup of coffee and the dogs at a different level. And I know it sounds kind of goofy talking like that, but you know, I've, I've become quite a birder and I love, you know, as, as I sit here today, I've uh, in my study, I've got my binoculars handy. And anytime I see a bird outside, you know, it's something that I enjoy watching and, and I tend to, to take them when I travel. And there are a lot of things you can do with a pair of binoculars, you know, watch airplanes, look at birds, watch sporting events. Uh, as a pro tip, get a nice <laughs> pair of binoculars. You will use them your entire sure. life, you know? So, uh, but anyway, and, you know, the other things uh, I spend a lot of time in some volunteer roles and I've used my skills awesome. for that and really enjoy it. Those are fulfilling things, you know, different committees and, and fundraising efforts and, and financial models and financing uh, options and, you know, uh, just raising capital for projects those are the type of things. And and then the one thing that I really enjoy that I've done a little bit of is I've, I've helped people, you know, some millennials that have started businesses, you know, and, and help them work through some of the uh, financial aspects and, and uh, 
uh, the monetary challenges that they have. Like, you know, if you were to start your own PA business practice, you know, there are a lot of things that you may be unfamiliar with. And uh, to have, you know, advice and free advice that hopefully is competent from someone with some experience is something that can really get you pointed in the right directions. And so I've really enjoyed spending some time with some some younger folks that are just kind of getting their feet going on their own practices and helping them through those those decision points. So those are some of the things that I do. I will say there's some things that, um, some stretch goals that I still need to work on, but retiring in the COVID year really kind of made it a funky fog sure. for that first year. And so I'm right at two years and I'm still having uh, some challenges to kind of find my way on some of the things I want to do. Uh, if that answers your question, I think it may. Yeah, sort of. definitely. <laughs> but blogging and podcasting, you know, I, I left that out. But blogging and podcasting is something that I've really enjoyed. And it was one of my goals. So at least I can say that one's going. Yeah, well. that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of the things that you've started to be able to do in your retirement and what you hope to do in the future. I think that's great. And where can the listeners find you, Paul, if they would like to follow along with your podcast or take a look at your blog? Sure. They can uh, find uh, my webpage at philighter.com. That's uh, www.philighter.com. Philighter, just like highlighter, only it's philighter. So right there on that webpage, you'll see a link to my podcast and my blog. And uh, I welcome your comments and feedback. Uh, so please feel free to leave those. That's great. I will make sure to include links to those in the show notes today as well. So thank you. And thanks so much, Paul, for taking the time to share your absolute wealth of information that you have shared over today's episode. I'm sure that all the advice that you have shared for us as millennials or other listeners today will be incredibly motivating to the listeners who are pursuing financial independence. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. You know, And the one point I'll leave you with is take action on one of these things. Just take action. The hardest thing is to to move from where you are to a place that may be a little less comfortable, but it will tremendously help your pursuit of FI in the long run. So thank you for having me today. It's really been a joy talking with you. And keep on going the PA the FI way. We'll, keep, we'll stay tuned to your future broadcast. Awesome. As well. Thanks, Paul. And to the listeners, check out the FileLighter podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share with another millennial that you know write a review of what you enjoyed about the show and subscribe for future content. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on. But more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.